Hey everyone, and welcome to the Soylent Green podcast, now with 40% more people. In this podcast, we'll explore climate change topics ranging from the soil microbiome to complex ecological systems. And if you have no idea what either of those are, don't worry, we'll explain any heavy concepts. My name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I'm a student at Colorado State University studying soil and crop sciences. And my name is Levi Johnson. I'm also a student at Colorado State studying soil and crop sciences. We're not experts either, but we want to use this platform to share what's happening in the climate change research right now. Our time at CSU has afforded us the privilege of studying under some great professors who have opened our eyes to some very cool concepts and ideas in soils, ecology, agroecosystems, climate change, and more. Now we want to pass on some of these awesome concepts to you. Our guest today is Josue Rodriguez-Ramos. Josue is a graduate student in ecology from Colorado State University. Josue has been awarded the Advancing Education Scholarship in part because of his service to the campus community and the greater Fort Collins area. Go Josue! Displaying great dedication in education and inclusion. Josue conducts research on how viruses mediate greenhouse gas emissions and contribute to global climate change, among other things, including building a connection with the Poudre River Public Library District to host a summer program about astrophysics called Imaginates. This program is bilingual, one week long, free and available to K-12 students from low-income, underrepresented families. Josue also represents his fellow grad students in the urge to provide young researchers with fair wages. We love Josue. He's hilarious and he makes learning so much fun. Thanks for talking to us, Josue. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Welcome. Hello, hello. What if I'm not an expert either? Do I say that now or do I... Do you... This is all going Because we're live. none of us are We're, we're live right now, by the way. None yeah. of us oh, are I know we're live. I'm making sure that they know, too. <laughs> we're here we to learn. We can't edit any of this out. <laughs> You're the resident soil virus expert we hear. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Kelly told us. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. We should start with what is a virus. Okay, yeah. So, like, I guess in its simplest form, the most basic definition, a virus is either DNA or RNA that's packed into a protein called a capsid. That's the baseline level you can be to be a virus. After that, you get a little more complicated. You can have five tail fibers. You can have little legs like that E. coli T4 phage that they use as like an attachment receptor. And you can have things like an envelope and a lot of viruses that infect humans or different animals that come from the membrane of whatever they're infecting. But yeah, most of the viruses are just DNA or RNA packed into this protein coat. Can you tell us the life cycle of a virus? Yeah, so viruses as a standalone organism are really prevalent, but really the importance that they kind of play in a lot of these ecosystems is through what they need to do to survive, essentially. So viruses usually have two different types of lifestyles. There's definitely variations to these and it gets a lot more complex. But the two baseline lifestyles are the lysogenic lifestyle and the lytic lifestyle. When a virus is in this lytic lifestyle, it finds this host cell, whatever it may be, it's usually bacteria because most of the viruses in the world don't infect humans. They just infect bacteria. Except for coronavirus. Well, that was like not even... <laughs> Ever hear There's that not one? even that much of it though. Like when you think about how many viruses are on earth, there's 10 to the 31 viruses on earth. That's, that's an absurd number. Viruses are the most numerous organisms on Earth. While we are thought to have roughly the same amount of bacterial cells as human cells in our body, which is around 37 trillion, 
we probably have 10 times as many virus particles in our bodies. There could be over 320,000 different viruses that infect mammals, many of which are harmless, while some actually might provide some benefit to us. These viruses are involved in essential bodily processes, forming part of our inner ecosystem. We are them, and they are us. In fact, 8% of our human genome is composed of viruses that have impacted our own evolution. That's like stars in the sky. Yeah, no, it's more, it's stars in the universe, I yeah, think. Well, I saw yeah. that number. Like, if, if you were to line them all up side by side, you would extend the distance from here to Mars 12 trillion times. What? Like, to and from. I, don't, like, I can't even comprehend a trillion. I don't, I don't either, which is, but then I can't comprehend 10 to the 31st either. So no, it's like, yeah, no, that's true. neither of these numbers can fit in my head, basically. <laughs> 10 to the 31, I mean, in the oceans only, they have enough biomass that equates to like 75 million blue whales worth of biomass. Whoa. So there's another number that I can't really wrap my head around either. <laughs> Okay, so I looked this up. An adult blue whale weighs roughly 150 tons. So 75 million blue whales, that is a lot of viruses. But, oh, life cycles. So viruses need to replicate within a host cell, essentially. They don't replicate by themselves. They, they can exist outside of a host cell, but they can't like reproduce outside of a host cell. So they need to take over a cell and they need to take over host cell DNA synthesis and protein synthesis and things like that. So when a virus finds a cell that it is compatible with and it can infect, it inserts its genome into that cell. And once that genome is into that cell, it does one of two things. It either enters the lytic cycle or it enters this lysogenic cycle. In the lytic cycle, it's a little bit simpler in a way where the virus inserts its DNA, it starts taking over the whole cell machinery, it starts degrading are like chopping up the host DNA and it starts using everything that it finds inside it to generate its own progeny, essentially. So it makes like a lot of little viruses and a lot more viruses within the host cell. And then it just kind of explodes the cell and releases all of these viruses into the environment, usually. It's pretty gnarly. They're pretty wicked. It's <laughs> like a little DNA hacker. Yeah. Basically. Well, yeah. how do viruses insert themselves in their host DNA? It depends on the virus. Okay. Some of them have little like channel basically that they insert that DNA through. They attach to different receptors within proteins sometimes. It can be like surface proteins, like membrane proteins, because that makes a little more sense. Sometimes though, they're like wild. Sometimes they'll take up iron particles that they find in the environment. And then when a bacteria needs iron, it sends out these things called desiderophores that kind of like search for this iron. And then since the virus coated itself in iron, the bacteria just calls it in and it's like, Hello. Yeah. And those sidereforms are like little claws, aren't they? Kind of grab onto that certain. If you want to whatever. personify it like that, sure. <laughs> yeah. it's definitely, it probably like doesn't look like a claw. Everything but in nature. Yeah, it's like the Toy Story claws, like a claw. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. I bet anything that's what it is. Sidereforms are small organic molecules produced by microbes, including bacteria, under iron limiting conditions. Synthesized sidephores, which have a high affinity for ferric iron, which can serve as a biological catalyst for many of the microbes' essential functions. Wow. So the virus disguises itself as iron so that the bacteria... Yeah, it just coats itself in iron. Wow. And so the bacteria is like, oh, you're iron? And he's like, I oh, yeah, that. I'm totally iron. <laughs> I swear I'm iron. 
then it just kills the bacteria. It's pretty cool. That's baller. So while Josue might not lie to you, those viruses, viruses as well. As well. <laughs> never oh, trust a virus. Never trust. Sometimes. Most of them are fine. <laughs> I bet. I mean, we're all standing here. There's viruses everywhere. There's 10 viruses for every one microbe. Wow. And microbes are everywhere. Yeah, we learned about that with uh, you Kelly. Know this so, right now. Mm-hmm. come on. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the lytic one, right? And then the lysogenic one is when the virus inserts itself into the cell instead of just starting to like degrade it and start exploding it and going all crazy on it. It actually inserts itself into the bacterial or archaeal genome, and then it just kind of sits there and lays low for a while until the environmental conditions are not apt for the survival of the host. And then it's like, all right, I've overstayed my welcome. It's time for you to die. And it explodes the bacteria and starts replicating itself. But when it's in this lysogenic cycle, once the host cell replicates, it replicates with that because it's integrated in the genome or the DNA of the host cell, which is pretty cool. Can these bacteria defend themselves against the viruses? Yeah, they have like a few things that they can do. Sometimes they have CRISPR arrays, which is basically like a human antivirus system in a way where like once a virus infects a bacteria, it can send out these enzymes to take care of the virus. And if it successfully fights that off, it'll store a little snippet of the DNA of the virus and keep it in this array so that when an infection comes in again, if it looks anything similar to that little code that it took and it stored in its CRISPR array, it's like, oh, I know who you are and you're bad news. So I'm just going to send the one thing that worked last time and I'm just going to kill you before you kill me. Nice. Constant war. Yeah, it's really (laughs) important for diversity, that arms race. They call it the viral bacterial arms race. So there's just an evolutionary arms race that goes on all the time between these bacteria and these viruses to exist and survive and evade each other. And it drives diversity quite a bit in ecological systems they've seen. Do you know what the turnover is on that? How quickly are they like, oh, I'm getting infected. I need to you know, make defenses and they change. You know, is it every second, every day? I mean, it depends every... on the virus for sure. But just like as a gross estimate for like all the bacteria in the ocean, 20 to 40% of that is lysed daily by viruses. Wow. It's like every day, a little a less than half or up to a little less than half of all bacteria in the oceans huh. explodes the microbe. It doesn't use that because it doesn't need it. But there's this idea, right, that when a virus infects something and it explodes it, all of that content gets recycled within the same trophic system, as opposed to a bacteria getting eaten by something bigger than like a nematode or something in the soil, and then the nematode gets eaten by either fungi or like a bird, and then the bird gets eaten. So like that scale that just keeps going up when a virus kills a bacteria, it kind of gets recycled within the bacterial and archaeal community itself or the microbial community. It's funny because... Levi and I were talking with Dr. Fonte about who controls like this nutrient cycling process. And we were kind of discussing between microbes and plants and really it might be viruses the whole time. He said like, did he say fungi? I bet he said fungi or nematodes. He's, he's a macrofauna guy. He's a macrofauna yeah. guy. I love yeah, yeah, he yeah. thinks earthworms all the way. I'm kidding here. All of our guests continuously mention that there is not one organism that controls these natural processes. It's a common theme you'll hear in this discipline, that there's a constant ebb and flow of competition and benefit. From what I've seen, it's very unclear. Like, I mean, obviously the microbes make nutrients available to plants, but what controls microbe communities and populations of maybe viruses? I mean, yeah, nematodes do eat 
bacteria and viruses, like maybe because of how they eat the bacteria. But like, we don't really know. It's like soil health, right? Like we don't know what exactly it is. So like in terms of contributions, we know that a lot of these things matter and we know that they might matter in like differing levels of importance. But in terms of quantifying importance, it's really hard because to Steve's point, earthworms aerate the soil. If you don't aerate soil, microbial processes, some of them anyways, don't happen. Right. If they don't happen, it's not prone to viral activity because there's not a lot of a host. So virus it, rolls in and it's like, everything's dead here. <laughs> yeah. Or like, there's nothing here for me. I'm just going to lay low and just kind of chill in this ecosystem until something does come up that I can feed on. Off that, how long can they just lay low and stand by until something comes along? So you're going to get really used to this answer. It depends. It depends <laughs> on like environmental conditions. It depends on even light kind of degrades sometimes. A lot of this like DNA material and these proteins. So like, there's a lot of variables that are in the mix here of how long a virus can survive outside of its host cell. So going back to like viral lifestyles, lytic lifestyles and lysogenic lifestyles, it has been shown that viruses communicate with each other. Viruses can produce these peptides essentially that they release while they're inside a cell already infecting it to let other viruses know more or less how many viruses are currently infecting a microbial community. They gauge how much or how little they want to blow up a cell or enter lysogenic cycle or enter the lytic cycle by these peptides, which is insane. So this peptide is basically them like ringing the dinner bell for other viruses. It's more like a, there's so much of this. So there's a lot of viruses that are already infecting, maybe I shouldn't keep infecting because I'm just going to run into Jimothy, my neighbor virus, and <laughs> screw up his home or something. So it's just a way for them to regulate this infection process, which is super cool. That's awesome. Where are we right now as far as research and soil viruses? We can identify them, but do we have more information about what role they play in the ecosystem? Yeah, so within the last few years, I feel, is when we're starting to like really hit at how viruses matter in terms of an ecosystem level. For the longest time, we could study them with like microscopes. We could just kind of like know that they're kind of there, but to track specifically who they were infecting within a natural community was pretty like based off of what you could culture. And you know from class, or at least I hope you know from class, come on, we talked about this so much, <laughs> that you can't culture. We were in class? Oh, yes, I you don't were. Know anything. <laughs> God, <laughs> wasting our breath. No. So, like, you know, we can't culture most of the microbial community that's in an environmental sample. Like, it, it's just really hard. And so, what we know from viruses, first of all, for the most part, is all the viruses that make you sick, which we know is not the case. And it makes a lot of sense, right? You study what is pertinent to your reality. Yes, plague doctors, doctors in the medieval times would definitely care more about like rabies than they do about a virus that may affect carbon cycling. But like now we're at a point where it's getting really important to understand all of the intricacies of how microbial communities exist and interact in the world because they are directly responsible, at least in part, for a lot of these global changes that we are seeing and are going to see as climate continues to change and things like that. So maybe 25 years ago, 20 years ago is when viral ecology really started like becoming a thing. And it started in the oceans because all of the people that started to talk about viruses were marine biologists. And they were like, we see all these things in our ecosystem. 
they're probably viruses. What are they doing? So you have like a lot of the viral greats, Jed Furman, Curtis Suttle, Steve Wilhelm, Matthew Sullivan. All of these people are marine biologists by training. And so this is where the field of viral ecology kind of was born. And now that these tools are kind of coming into age and all of these tools are kind of like developing by people like Simon Rue and Matt Sullivan and Ben Bolduck, people like Kelly, people like me, people like Joanne Emerson, like Gary Trubel, all of these people are starting to study these communities in other ecosystems and climatically relevant ecosystems like permafrost and soil and rivers, which is what I like to study. And so like we are at a point where we can start asking the question, how do viruses impact these ecosystems? And within the last six or seven years, a lot of viruses in soil papers have started kind of coming out. Like Joanne Emerson had a viral paper in permafrost soil. So permafrost, as you know, is like a very critical, climatically critical, important ecosystem. So like as the globe continues to warm, these permafrost soils, which are frozen, continue to thaw. And I think it's 1,600 billion tons of carbon is stored in these permafrost soils. And that is all kind of coming readily available to all of these microbial communities that start metabolizing it and start releasing these greenhouse gases. And so Joanne Emerson, she had this paper on basically like, where are the viruses in the system? Are they active in the thaw? Are they active when they're frozen? And what can they possibly do? And so she found these viruses that can infect all of these different hosts that metabolize these carbon differently. And that's really interesting. But she also found that these viruses can contain genes called auxiliary metabolic genes or AMGs, which the viruses themselves cannot use. But when they infect a host, they are used to enhance host metabolism to give it an ecological advantage so that it can reproduce quicker and they can take over more cells. So it's very insidious Gee, in a way. <laughs> They're geniuses. So the virus like... helps the micro metabolize quicker because it's ensuring the survival of their host. Yeah. The microbe basically says, if I give you access to certain types of carbon that you normally don't have access to, you grow faster. And if you grow faster, I grow faster because I can't grow without you. It's toxic relationship 101 yeah, virus edition. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> in oceans specifically, there's photosynthesis genes in cyanobacteria that they no longer carry. They have their viruses carry it for them. They've developed this dependency so bad. And this is like one of Matthew Sullivan's first papers or big papers in auxiliary metabolic genes. And they literally have evolved to live and exist together so that their photosynthesis does not happen at a rate that's enough for them to survive unless they're being infected by a virus and supplemented by this gene that the virus has. Wow. So that's kind of like a metabolic boost that bacteria are getting from these viruses, which helps them carry out some function more efficiently. But with a catch, the viruses are basically fattening them up for the kill. So we're talking about all this like survival techniques and the viruses, quote unquote, living within bacteria. Oh, they're alive. <laughs> that was going to be the next question. Are they actually alive? Why wouldn't they be? Like people are like... I mean, it seems like it to me. There's like the biological definitions of life get kind of weird. And that's why people say like, oh, they're not alive because they can't reproduce by themselves. Oh, they're not alive because they can't like communicate. Oh, they're not. There's like all these like excuses, really. That's what I see them <laughs> as. 
It's like, look, why do you want to keep the viruses animated, like, out? Right? They move around and do their they, own thing. They I mean, they, they technically go, don't move around themselves. They just kind of diffuse. And that's another one. Like, well, they're not even capable of movement. It's like, well, they, I mean, they move ish using different things. But like, they're like, oh, they can't reproduce by themselves. Why wouldn't they? Like, if I could just survive off of doing nothing all day, that would be amazing. And I'd consider myself living. <laughs> I, know I mean, that's basically that. what I do already. And I guess I'm kind of alive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, they don't communicate. It's like, well, I mean, they produce these like protein, these peptides that are definitely used for communication ish right. purposes to determine the life cycle that they're going to take. It's like, oh, well, like well, you said earlier, they'll send out messages, maybe chemical messages to other viruses. Stay away. I got this. Sure. It's like, well, they don't communicate. It's like, because it's not a sound. Like, what is that? Like, chemotaxis. I just wanted to quickly define chemotaxis. I don't really know a whole lot about it, but it's basically a process whereby a unicellular or multicellular organism migrates in the direction of a particular chemical concentration, kind of how I migrate in the general direction of a high concentration of pizza. I don't know. I am team alive. I don't, <laughs> I don't see why you would exclude them from yeah, this. I don't base. discriminate. No. Yeah. People are like, well, what about prions? And it's like, for, for they those didn't. who don't know, give us a rundown on what a prion is. A prion is literally a misfolded protein. And then it gets really bad because it's misfolded. I don't and know what's that the much proper about way prions. to fold it. You know, you got to go sleeves in and Didn't then your mom teach you? The sides. It's like bed sheets. <laughs> who, I don't know how to fold a bed sheet. Is it Definitely like folding a fitted sheet? sheet? <laughs> a fitted sheet. Yeah, that's what I mean. I don't know. Okay, here's a little bit more about prions. Prions are abnormally folded proteins that lack any DNA. They replicate by causing other normally folded proteins to rearrange themselves into a misfolded structure. The misfolded proteins accumulate in the brain of wildlife, eventually leading to tissue damage and resulting in neurological signs and deficits, like chronic wasting disease in deer. And prion disease can also occur in humans. Yeah, but prions are like these misfolded proteins and people are like, well, if viruses are alive, then so are prions. It's like prions don't need to assemble themselves. Prions don't need to infect the host and generate their DNA. There's so much more complexity to viral genomes than freaking prions, even though prions prions are cool. Like they're pretty cool. (laughs) I'm not saying they're not cool. Prion people don't come at me. You heard it here first. He's discriminating against prions, no, guys. I never said that. I have good friends that study prions. Oh, the chronic wasting disease people are going to be knocking at the door. Mad cow disease for everyone. Yep. So I want to find out more about your journey, how you got here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started studying viruses? <laughs> My virus origin story is kind of stupid and funny. <laughs> I so I, infected by a virus. <laughs> okay, you're laughing. This is where this is going. It's something like Spider-Man. No, no, no. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I spent my whole life in Puerto Rico. And I wanted to be a vet before I wanted to study viruses. So I got this position being like a research veterinary assistant. You weren't like a little kid being like, I want to study viruses when I grow up. No, I wasn't born this way. <laughs> a lot happened to damage me irreparably. And this is why I am the way I am. So I got this opportunity to study as like this like vet assistant for a summer. And I used to work with rhesus macaques, those like cute little monkeys that Aww. you see in a lot of places. You say, ah, but rhesus macaques, most of, maybe not most, a lot of them have herpes B. And herpes B in rhesus macaques is nothing. It doesn't matter. It, it's innocuous mm. where it doesn't affect you. Huh. 
cover that over with a word because I don't, I'm not going to get it. Um, <laughs> and then like, so there, it doesn't do anything to them basically, but it's a freaking simian virus. And if it passes over to a human, you just die. There's no cure. There's no way to prevent. You just straight up die. You get it. Your brain swells up and then you die. And so that's so, what you were doing, huh? So that's, I was a vet assistant <laughs> doing necropsies on dead primates. Wow. And this one primate special thing had explosive diarrhea when they died. <laughs> and I went to cut it open to see what the cause of death was. And just poop flew everywhere. Oh. And it got in my mouth. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> Not what I was expecting. I was like, I'm gonna die totally of freaking <laughs> herpes B. This is it. This is how I die. Oh my god. And then I didn't know much about viruses at that point. Not too much, anyways. And so I was like, oh my god, I gotta like research what's gonna yeah. happen to me. So I spent like days researching viruses and, and I was freaking like, freaking out, I imagine. But in a way, I was like, holy crap, like these things are so cool. If I survive this, I'm gonna study yeah. them. Yeah. Amazing. And then study. nothing happened. And so now I'm here. And I'm like, Oh, I guess oh. I did say I would do that, huh? And <laughs> now I study viruses. That's awesome. That <laughs> what an origin best. story. Yeah. That is my viral origin story. It's not a joke. That's literally how it happened. What would a Soylent Green episode be without the mentioning of poop? Fantastic. <laughs> how do we look for viruses in soils? And why is it difficult? Yeah, it's very difficult to study viruses at all like as we were talking right about like how most of what we knew was about what we could culture and now with all of these multi-omic techniques like metagenomics where you can kind of sequence all of the dna that's present in an environmental sample with these tools now is when we're starting to get at these viruses and so viral metagenomics or viromics is kind of how a lot of people are are tackling this issue of what are viruses doing in these ecosystems and what might be their importance within the soil matrix or oceans or wherever it is that they are. And so when you sequence all of the DNA within an environmental sample, you get eukaryotes, you get bacteria, you get viruses, you kind of get everything. And you can use these different types of tools that help you identify viral genomes from within these ecosystem DNA or these environmental DNAs. They use things like similarity to other viruses. They use things like a depletion in genes that have an annotation. So like if there's more genes that you don't know what they are than usual, that's usually a pretty good sign that it's a virus because we know so little about them that it can actually be used as a metric. We use things like a similarity to the viral hallmark genes or things like that. We use depletion in strand switching, which is just like... You're going to have to expand that term a little bit. <laughs> I don't want to. No. Uh, it's So basically, like, usually in microbial genomes, DNA, duh, is for double. <laughs> Not really. The duh is for deoxyribonucleic, but it means there's two strands. And you can store genes across both of those strands, essentially. And when you're a virus, you usually don't swap out. You just kind of keep it in one single strand bacteria usually switch it between pretty willy-nilly so a depletion in strand switching is usually a good indication of a virus it's not like the only indication of a virus but when using all of these different metrics in combination you can get scores that can give you confidence on how likely an assembled contig or a scaffold is or is not a viral genome contig is derived from the word contiguous and in dna sequencing 
basically illustrates which base pairs match up. Base pairs are all those A's, C's, G's, and T's that determine what the gene does. DNA is sequenced into reads, which consist of 100 base pairs assembled into contigs, which themselves contain about 5,000 to 300,000 base pairs, clustered into what are called bins. A genome is sequenced when the function of these bins is known. They are then grouped into what's called a metagenome assembled genome, or MAG. A MAG is kind of like a composite image of major, well-known parts from which the entire genome is inferred. And I'm assuming that there's these databases of genomes that researchers use to compare what they found in their DNA to what other people have found, and that's how they kind of figure out what's there. Both viruses, I'm assuming there's a limitation on how many have been identified, mm -hmm. so you have a lot of unknown DNA, and you're like, I don't know what this yeah, is. Absolutely. Who does uh, this belong to? Totally. And like, that's one of the big problems with even viral identification and like being like that thing is viral. Most of what we know is medical. Mm -hmm. Soil viruses look nothing like the virus that'll get you sick. And so when you're comparing sequence similarities, you'll probably won't get much. Like I sometimes sift through 30,000 row Excel spreadsheets, see if I can feel something. No, I'm just kidding. To see if it like- <laughs> Science if, is fun. <laughs> yeah, science is great. To see if like it is a viral genome or not. And like, just kind of like, I just go through all of my genomes and all my annotations. It's mostly just empty cells that you don't know what they are because these databases are so lacking. And soil viruses, river viruses, rivers are like insanely underexplored in mm. virus land. But most of the reference databases that contain viruses don't hold a lot of the diversity that we're seeing exists in these natural ecosystems. And so like, yeah, there's 10 to the 31 viruses on earth in soil alone. There's about 10 to the five to 10 to the seven viruses per gram of soil. And I know a gram of soil is not a lot. So imagine how many viruses are present in just an ag field or yeah. in a tropical forest field. Like there's... Or in the back of my car. In the back of your car, <laughs> under your nail, in yeah, the air that you breathe. They're <laughs> everywhere. Point. And Good most point. of them don't infect humans. Like I said, they get a bad rep. And it makes sense that they Viruses do. Viruses okay, guys. Yeah, they're actually, <laughs> most it of sounds them are. like from what we've learned so far, pretty necessary. And they're extremely necessary. Like, yeah. like Without viruses, things would go haywire. Things wouldn't have to evolve. That sets them up for changes in environmental condition that they're not developed to handle or microbial communities. Viruses can help with things like photosynthesis, like we talked about. They can help with things like carbon degradation, sulfur genes, nitrogen cycling genes, maybe. If you don't have viruses infecting community members, you don't have a lot of microbial diversity. And if you don't have a lot of microbial diversity, you're usually in trouble because yeah. if anything were to go wrong in that ecosystem, you need to have backup of a community that can do something similar. Just going back to IDing what viruses are in your sample when you're sequencing DNA, can you give us a rundown on the difference between viruses not having a marker gene when something like a microorganism does? Yeah. So, see, you did learn something in class. So, as you learned in class, bacteria, for example, have like universal marker genes, like all bacteria have this. 16s ribosomal rna gene like a barcode it's like a barcode people love to look at it people love to identify it and they're like this is it this means everything i want it you can tell what different organisms are present you can estimate the counts that they're in because of this hallmark gene and this 16s rna 
16-R-RNA is a gene that has proved to be the most informative for investigating evolutionary relatedness between microbes. 16-S-RNA is a sequence of DNA that encodes the RNA component of the smaller subunit of the bacterial ribosome. The 16-S-RRNA gene is present in all bacteria, and a related form occurs in all cells, including those of eukaryotes. Analysis of the 16-S-RRNA sequence from many organisms has revealed that some portions of the molecule undergo rapid genetic changes. Thereby, this distinguishes them between different species within the same genus. Other positions change very slowly, allowing much broader taxonomic levels to be distinguished. Essentially, when you sequence bacteria's DNA and locate this 16-S-RRNA gene, you can assume where that species would fall on the phylogenetic tree, which is extremely helpful in IDing and separating one species from another. Viruses don't have those. Viruses don't have one ultra-conserved gene across every single virus that's out there. So there's no catch-all tool or gene, basically, that you can sequence to get the information that you need to get on a virus. You need to use these kind of untargeted, generalized environmental metagenomes, and you can make it more geared towards viruses. So viromics is you can have viromes, which is viral metagenomes, which are metagenomes, but before you sequence them, you filter them and you process them and you like process them in such a way that viruses are preferred when you sequence it, as opposed to the bigger, bulkier bacteria. And that, when you sequence that, you usually get a lot more viral content when sure. you do that. Yeah. So cool. going maybe on that same track, but also back to what you were talking about with streams, what have you looked into with streams in terms of viruses living there or maybe not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Infecting other bacteria, other organisms, you know. Yeah, so rivers are like, rivers are like a really cool ecosystem Soils are like really important as well. Obviously, I'm not saying soils aren't cool. They're very cool. <laughs> Take all, offense to that. <laughs> everything's okay. Soils are great. But rivers are really cool too because there's this nexus, right, between terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems that's getting inputs from riparian vegetation. It's getting input from all of these different types of soils and it's transferring them all the way over to the oceans. And so you get a lot of carbon that gets input into these streams. You get a lot of nutrients that kind of get cycled and respired by microbial communities within these ecosystems. It turns out that up to like 30% of anthropogenic nitrous oxide emissions come from rivers. Mm -hmm. And rivers are less than 1% of Earth's non-glaciated freshwater area. So it's a very small area, but it's very large in terms of potential global impacts. Uh, Interesting. And, I did not know that. Yeah. Rivers are crazy. Right? It's all oceans, oceans, oceans. Oceans. Who cares about the ocean? Rivers can it's only amount. Most of the planet. <laughs> there was a paper that came out last year that basically said that rivers can contain as much flux wow. of methane as the entire ocean. Wow. So like oh, that's fascinating. It's crazy. Obviously, it depends how much of that actually gets released into the environment because it's flux, right? It's just like the creation consumption and it doesn't mean it all Balance. goes into the air. Balance, yes. Because there's does. bacteria that could consume it. There's bacteria that produce it. It can get transformed into many different kinds of things. So like different metabolisms, oh. different strokes for different microbes, I guess. Oh. 
And so I study rivers and I try to like tease apart what microbial communities are doing in rivers, which we know that they matter, but we don't really know how they matter. Like we don't know the mechanistic underpinnings of their metabolisms. And I like to study viruses within the context of microbial community metabolism, because a virus itself, yes, it definitely contains a lot of carbon, contains a lot of nitrogen, phosphorus. So they are reservoirs of a lot of these nutrients. But what I think is really cool is how they impact the metabolism that the hosts can potentially do. So like if you have a microbe that does denitrification and releases nitrous oxide, but then you have a virus that affects that, do you even get that process? And at what rate? How much of that process actually goes through to nitrous oxide versus stays within the first few steps of denitrification and stays in nitric oxide? So it doesn't go all the way through that metabolism. So a lot of what I like to do and what Kelly has convinced me matters a lot. And now she's like, don't you want to do only a virus already? And I'm like, no, but look with the microbes too. Um, so like, yeah, I like to think about them within the context of how they can impact an ecosystem service or a metabolism, essentially a process as yeah. a whole. What have you found in that realm so far? Yes. <laughs> but also maybe but it depends <laughs> and, i think and the interview the answer is it depends no negative yeah it depends it in the surface waters versus the poor waters there seems to be more like heterogeneity and sediments which makes so sense like quickly define poor water for so us. yeah so surface water is just flowing water that you kind of see when you think about agricultural land that they say oh your or nitrates are leaching into the rivers they're usually going to that surface water and getting washed out the poor waters are within the sediment bed of that river. The water that's found within those little pores and these little microsites, those are what's considered the poor waters. So you get a lot of groundwater upwelling, you get a lot of nutrient mixing within that poor water. And that kind of leads to a lot of microsites and ecological niches where different microbes can survive and then different viruses predate on those microbes. And so it leads to different processes happening. So it does seem to be a little less stable across time based on my research, which isn't published yet. Hopefully it'll be published soon. And <laughs> surface water. Stable, the, the poor water? No, those are less stable. Yeah. Yeah. The poor waters are less stable. And then the surface waters are more stable. And I thought it didn't make sense until I thought about it. And then I guess it kind of makes more sense because surface water is just like this heterogeneous mix of liquid that just kind of meshes. And it gets these consistent inputs from riparian vegetation. And so it makes a little sense that the communities that you can see there are more used to the normal things that keep happening all the time. And they keep encountering in terms of nutrients and carbon types and things like that versus the poor water with, oh, there's oxygen here. And then it's like, surprise, it's gone. You got to adapt to that. And there's a lot of turnover maybe. Yeah. But we don't really know that yet. That's what I'm trying to answer. But yeah. <laughs> Hit me up in a year-ish. No, hopefully like a few months. God, not a year. <laughs> well, can we throw in a quick impact that climate change might potentially have on soil viruses? Yeah. If we go back to permafrost ecosystems, we know that as the climate warms, this is going to create this feedback of melting, essentially, because more greenhouse gas will be produced as these soils thaw. And so these communities that were inert for so long are going to start being active and these viruses are going to start acting up. These microbes are going to start metabolizing. And so as the globe warms, we're going to have more microbial activity and more viral predation probably. And we don't really know what that's going to mean. 
it's probably not going to be good because <laughs> all of these microbes, a lot of them are methanogens that emit these methane gases into the atmosphere. But in terms of quantifying it, I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's where we're headed. I think we yeah. want to understand what the overall contributions of these microbial communities and then viral communities are to yeah. these ecosystem processes and emissions. Also, I wanted to talk to you about something that I think is important to spread awareness on for anyone who might be listening, but I don't know if you volunteered or you were elected to kind of represent the grad student body in terms of like fair wages for young researchers. And I wanted to know your opinion on what could be done or what is happening now to make sure that people are either getting paid what they deserve to be paid or that maybe some additional costs to them are dropped, something along those lines? An excellent question. I've been being paid in whippings. <laughs> yeah, no more whippings. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not like any leader within the community or any of the like movements. There's a lot of good people and amazing people that are doing a lot of that work. I just kind of sit in the sidelines and like try to make people realize that this is happening. Right. Really. Yeah, exactly. And so like, there's a lot of issues right now within CSU graduate school community and kind of graduate communities in a lot of different universities and it's graduate student fees. Some labs like my lab can afford to kind of pay graduate students a living wage and can afford to pay our fees basically, but that's not the case for most labs. And so a lot of these graduate students who are already very underpaid. And in debt. And in debt, because it's a PhD or a master's, like it's not meant to be lucrative, you know? And so CSU actually has one of the highest fees within like peer institutions, where it accounts for like a huge chunk of your salary or your yearly salary. I think it's like up to 15% or something wow. like that of your yearly salary goes back into fees. So you're kind of paying to work and this pay to work system that kind of gets generated a lot of these people so they can't get secondary jobs to pay off these fees their salaries and tuitions aren't enough so what you get is a community of people that are like very overworked and not compensated for that work and they can't pay for it and so and it's very expensive to live here and it's yeah, unfortunately a very, very like a non-ending cycle if you get wrapped up into that loop and there's so many people smart people who are doing good work you know so the problem throughout is i mean i'm not grad student but I couldn't find lab work because it didn't pay enough. I had to make a living wage and I couldn't afford to work yeah, like on you campus need to in make my field. Enough that you can exist in the space. And so do that plus also do your research plus also pay your fees plus also it, there's a lot of and this and that and this and that and it adds up really quickly. So there's a lot of people that struggle financially because of these fees and a lot of institutions, University of Boulder, they started paying for these fees. That's awesome. It's very not abnormal that this happens. And it, I'm sure it's negligible to the institution, these sure, fees, but to the peanuts, individual. But individuals. Yeah. Yeah. It matters a lot more to the individual who can't afford to pay for food, like an emergency where to arise. Like it's not everyone's story. Like it's not my story, like I said, because some labs can afford to cost these things. But there's a lot of voices and a lot of stories to be heard that speak to, hey, this happened within my family unit. I had to take out this much money from my savings. I was one medical accident away from not being able to pay my rent or not being able to eat or afford yeah. food. And that's just unsustainable when you're building up the next class of scientists and the future of solutions about climate change and about 
what we're going to face as a society and as a people within the next few years. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I just want others to be aware of the situation. And if anyone is looking to reach out to you, do you want to leave your contact information or where people can find your work? Yeah, sure. You can look at me on Twitter. It's at J-R-R underscore microbio. <laughs> it was just not taken. <laughs> um, I was Yeah, it's, I was going to do like a J-R-R Tolkien kind of thing, but then I was like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, that's my Twitter and my email is J-R-O-D-R-A-M, J-R-O-D-R-A-M at callestate.edu. So just tweet me, email me. Awesome. Thank you so much. For sure. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having it. me. And let's real quick get your hot take on the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm not going to hate on it. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously. Who's I'm, I'm just going to be excited. Oh, I have no idea, but it's a series, so there's a lot of room for it to go bad mm. and, and for it to become the next Game of Thrones. But a lot of room for it to be good. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like the Hobbit movies. No, they were. I've just they been were burned so too many times, yeah, man. I don't like that. <laughs> Who does? But the That's the Lord problem. <laughs> no, no, no. It's gonna be. Oh good. yeah, the original is great. <laughs> oh, the original trilogy, amazing. But they definitely could have done three movies of each book on the original, and they, what they didn't, <laughs> and then the Hobbit did, which is yeah. way yeah. shorter. So, so like, weird. Why did you do it then? And then you didn't have to. Don't understand it. Nope, makes no sense. But here we are. <laughs> Viruses, y'all. <laughs> yeah, they're alive and they're they like control. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> they love Lord of the Rings. They freaking love Lord of the Rings. Mordor. <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> was that an attempt at Gollum? Jesus. That's fantastic. Please leave all this in. Andy Circus, you gotta go deeper. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm gonna make it raspy. Uh...